Now for Raising the Bar, Greater RVA's premier law talk radio show. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. 804-454-1366. Good morning and welcome to Raising the Bar, Greater RVA's Law Talk Radio Show. This is attorney Colleen Quinn of Lock and Quinn. And today we're going to talk about common employer screw-ups. How do employers keep themselves out of hot water. Lots and lots of tricky areas if you are an employer um, that you need to know about. And joining me today is Katie Kitzstein, also an attorney with Locke and Quinn. Um, and Katie's going to pummel me with a lot of questions today about employment law. So it's going to be an interesting show. And if you'd like to call into the show, if you are an employer, whether it's of one employee or 50 or 100, Call into the show at 804-454-1366 for your free legal advice today on employment issues. Remember that Raising the Bar Law Talk Radio is shown every Wednesday at 9 a.m. And if you miss the show, there are lots and lots of videos on the Lock and Quinn Facebook page where we have preserved all of this free legal information. Also on the Raising the Bar Law Talk a website, you can find um, the radio shows, the link to the iTunes podcast series, mm -hmm. and also a, a listing of a lot of the free and reduced cost and specialty legal services that are available in the Richmond um, and greater RVA community. Yep. yep. So Great resource. Lots <laughs> of good stuff. And mm -hmm. we're going to try to get some of the stuff from today um, up on the website too, um, because we've got a just a, a lot of things to share um, that are really good resources. So let's get started. Absolutely. Um, so this is a really interesting topic and good for people to know, especially if they are uh, managing or running a business. Um, so just general advice. What are the two rules that every employer should know? You know, we're going to cover a whole bunch of federal and state law and all right. this other <laughs> stuff, and it can get kind of confusing. But it all comes down to just two rules. One, be fair. Two, be consistent. Mm -hmm. Those, you know, those are really the two things that um, if an employer does, they will stay out of hot water. Now, there are some other things like, you know, basically making sure that you register your employees right. properly <laughs> and that sort of thing. <laughs> but, but as a general concept, I see so many employers get into hot water when they're inconsistent in the way they're treating employees mm -hmm. or they're just not fair in how they go about running their business. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Be, be nice. <laughs> yeah, and that's what so many of these really technical federal and state laws come down to is you're not being fair or you're being inconsistent in how you apply and how you apply the rules and you've gotten yourself now into a lawsuit and, you know, might end up owing some money. Um, so getting a little bit more technical, um, what are some of the basics employers need to know when they're hiring new employees just in terms of making sure they're set up properly from the beginning? Yeah, and that's, this is uh, where it's all the paperwork, you know, right. it kind of gets a little bit intense. Um and there's, there are a lot of differences depending on how many employees an employer has, but mm -hmm. there's something fundamental to all employees, whether you have one or five or 10, and that is that you've got to get your hiring paperwork in order. So you've got to get an EIN, an employer ID number from the IRS. Mm -hmm. You've got to prepare your I-9 and your W-4 forms, and you've got to report your new hires to the state within 20 days of hire. And um, there is, there are just so many good resources, too, out there that can right. help new employers. 
Um, so you've got the Virginia New Hire Reporting Center, um, which is at www.newhirereporting.com. Mm-hmm. Okay, makes it pretty, you know, just Google in Virginia New Hire. Right. Um, you've also got the Virginia Employment Commission, mm-hmm. and they've got tons of information. You've got the Virginia Workforce Connection, mm-hmm. um, all of these great resources online. Other ones include the, the uh, Small Business Administration, the U.S. Small Business Administration. They've got a Richmond office downtown. You can mm-hmm. walk in and say, look at, I'm setting up a new business. I need some help. You've got the Virginia Chamber of Commerce. You've got the Greater Richmond Small Business Development Center, the Richmond Economic Development Department, the Greater Richmond Partnership. And then you've got local county resources, including um, Henrico County and Chesterfield County. Both have economic development offices. So, um, like I said, Katie, we've got to get this stuff up on the website and, and get yeah. it in a format that if anybody um, writes to us at Lock and Quinn, we can also just send out this list. Absolutely. You know, because it's, um, it's, there's just so much good stuff out there to get started. And it really makes it easy. You know, there's a lot of paperwork when you're bringing on new employees, but this really, I think, makes it easy for folks to um, make sure that they're getting the right, the right stuff set up so that everyone's classified right from the beginning and um, registered right and... Um, your your initial paperwork is all set up correctly. Yeah, because, I mean, we're going to talk about it a little bit more in the show, but one of the things that employers do sometimes is they will 1099, meaning employees, meaning they will think they can have them be an independent contractor. Right. And that is where they get into a lot of hot water because um, the IRS closely monitors whether you truly are an independent contractor right. or not. Yeah, we're um, going to talk a lot. I know we're going to talk a little bit more about the FLSA and how people tend to screw that up yeah. uh, quite a bit. So, all right, after all of you, all of your employees are set up with the right forms, what else needs to be in place just business-wise? Um, I think, you know, employee handbooks or something are things that, you know, most employers think, think about. Is that something every business needs? Is this just for big companies? Um, I personally think that every business should have an employee handbook. Now, one thing that is a real misconception is that a lot of folks think that an employee handbook is the law. Right. Okay. You know? A lot of people call our office right. thinking that. And, 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 yeah. We get all these calls that somebody will say, well, my employer violated the employee handbook. You're like, well, that's not the law. But employee handbooks are basically a nice guide for the the policies in the workplace. Mm-hmm. How how are we going to run the office? What are the general rules of work? You know, so basically, and you have an overview of the policies and procedures. Um, you do have things in there that are legal, like, um, you know, EEOC guidance, right. basically, we're not going to discriminate in hiring, firing, um, the provision of benefits, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, but typically, there also will be um, some stuff in there about whether they're going to do background checks, uh, whether um, there are going to be any medical exams or drug testing. Is there going to be um, random drug testing mm-hmm. or is it going to be based on suspicion only? You know, things to kind of alert employees of, about what's going to happen possibly in the workplace. Um, payroll, record keeping, um, pay deductions, how right. bonuses are going to work, um, leave and attendance and benefit policies. Um, company property. How are you supposed to care for company property? Right. If you damage your uniform, you know, if, mm-hmm. if it's it's because the, the dog took a bite out of, you know, right. your shirt. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, may, maybe the, the company's going to go ahead and, and pay for the for, for another shirt, you know. On the other hand, if, if you um, intentionally took your shirt and you ripped it up, well, mm-hmm. then the, the company's going to say that we're not going to replace your shirt if you, you've got to pay for the next you, yeah. one, right? 
Um, also workplace safety, accident prevention. Um, but one thing that is really um, important for employers to know about an employee handbook is if somebody is terminated and they make a claim with the Virginia Employment Commission, mm-hmm. now, so if, if somebody um, is out of work and they need to make an unemployment claim, typically if they quit their job, you're not going to get unemployment, mm-hmm. okay? Um, if it's a layoff, okay, because the company has to downsize or whatever, you typically will get unemployment. Mm-hmm. And then the tricky area is uh, when they're terminated for a willful violation. Okay, so somebody, if they, if the employer can show that they were clearly terminated for a willful violation, they will not get unemployment. But it's a lot easier for an employer to do that if they have an employee handbook that says these are all of our rules. Okay, right. because you knew you, it was a rule. You knew you it was a rule, it. right? And mm-hmm. if you don't have a handbook that spells out these are all the rules, it's much harder to show that there was a clear rule in place that um, you had to be to work on time, mm-hmm. um, that you uh, had to turn your computer off at night um, for security reasons that uh, you could not be insubordinate. Um, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, you know, that there was no horseplay allowed, right. um, that uh, you basically needed to wear your uniform and show up with your uniform, that if you're working in a cafeteria or a restaurant, that you needed to have your hair net, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, whatever that those rules might be that that are out there, Absolutely. you're able then to point to them. So and that's in why the, your boss makes you sign the handbook right. so that when you try to file for unemployment, they can say, uh-uh, you signed saying you read and understood all of this, you knew this was a rule, and you violated it. Yeah. So willful violation. The other thing I see employers do that gets them in hot water is they have this great handbook, and they have the employee sign, and then they don't give the employee a copy of the handbook. I mean, employees are not going to remember everything that's in that mm-hmm. handbook. Um, give them a copy to refer to. Make sure that they've got that, you know. Right. Or it can be an electronic copy so that, it, you know, it's, it's on their computer. But you want to make sure that the employees have a copy of that handbook. I mean, you spent the money on attorneys like us to go ahead and, yes. and prepare it, right? Right. You, you know, you have us update it maybe every two to three years, ideally. And, you know, we want to make sure that uh, that's money well spent. So right. give a copy to the employees. So everything um, uh, else that needs to go into a handbook includes... Uh, drug and alcohol policies and the consequences. Mm-hmm. You know, if you show up bombed for work, well, that's a no-no. Right. And, you know, I mean, it's a kind of a no-brainer, <laughs> but let's put it in the handbook. Right. Um, we talked about the the conduct rules. And uh, also, most employers will have some sort of progressive discipline policy. Right. Um, and that goes back to that rule of be fair, mm-hmm. right? Because you want to give somebody a little bit of notice ahead of time that your performance is not quite up to snuff. It's not, it's not quite up to our standards. Mm-hmm. And so we want you to to know that... Um, if you continue to be tardy, you know, right. that by the fifth time that you're 15 minutes late for work, that's, that's not going to work for this particular company. Right. Now, some companies can flex, their, you know, they, they can have flexible schedules, but most businesses operate on certain operating hours and you need the employees there during those, op- those business hours, Right. Right. And I mean, that goes back again to showing that a violation was willful. If you do have this progressive discipline policy that says not only was it in the handbook and it was a rule that they knew that we had, but we warned them multiple times to stop violating it. And this was the third or fourth time that, 
you know, they broke this rule after being, you know, having all of these warnings and having this progressive discipline. And so that makes it much harder for the employee to then go to the VEC and say, oh, I didn't know I was breaking a rule. This wasn't a willful violation. This was just, you know, miscommunication or I thought that, you know, it wasn't that I big a deal. Had a flex policy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is having a progressive um, discipline policy also helps when employers get um, discrimination claims right. too, um, where the employee says, oh, they terminated me because of my race or they terminated me because of my religion or my sex or my age or whatever mm-hmm. it was. And if you have a progressive discipline policy and you're able to show, no, we gave this warning and then we gave that warning and, you know, and the warnings were in writing and it was over a long period of time, then it becomes so much more defensible for that employer mm-hmm. um, to defend that discrimination claim. And say, no, this was a performance issue, not a not anything else. Right. It wasn't based on your race or your color or your sex or your age or any of those discriminatory factors or the fact that you were pregnant or, although that is another area that's a tricky area. Um, But when you've got that progressive discipline and and the employees need to understand that the employer always has the right to not do all those progressive discipline steps if Mm -hmm. it's something really, really bad. Okay. Right. Like I had the case where one of my clients, um, the employee embezzled. Okay. So they like embezzled, you know, several thousand dollars from the employer. And then that ran into several issues, Mm -hmm. which uh, first of all uh, was um, the employee said, well, well, what about the progressive discipline? I was like, you stole from the company, you're fired. (laughs) But then we also ran into the issue of whether the employee was due their last paycheck. Yeah, and actually they are. Yeah. You can't offset the paycheck. So they steal $3,000 from you. You would think, okay, well, we're not going to pay them the last paycheck, right. okay? And that becomes a really tricky area because technically you still owe them for the work performed and the embezzlement is a criminal matter. Right, they okay? deal with separately. Right, and um, so you basically say, you can say, well, you can come pick up your last paycheck, but at the same time, there's going to be a police officer here, <laughs> you know? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Um, or you can also say, well, you know, there's, we're, we're going to prosecute criminally and you can have your paycheck go toward restitution if you would like, mm-hmm. you know, but, but it still has to be voluntarily on the part of the, right. the um, employee that's done the embezzlement. So that's, I, I can remember my client saying, you're, you're, you are, you know, he used different language, but you are kidding me, <laughs> you know, um, he just stole three thousand dollars from us, uh-huh. and we still have to give him his paycheck. And I'm like, yeah, unfortunately, you still yeah. owe him for the work done, even though it was shoddy work because he was stealing from you. He was embezzling. <laughs> That's right. right. So, um, other things about the handbook, um, you want to make abundantly clear at the very front of the handbook that in Virginia it is employment at will. Mm-hmm. Okay, that means that you are at the will of the employer, and you're at your own will. Mm-hmm. So. The employee can walk at any time from employment, and the employer can also say to the employee, I'm sorry, but this just isn't working out. It's an employment at will situation, Mm -hmm. and either can leave. And the handbook also needs to say at the very front, it is not a binding document. It can be changed by the employer at any time, but it does set forth just certain expectations in the workplace. I mean, that's really what it's there for is to kind of set forth those expectations, um, in there, and and it should say at the very front, this is not a contract, right? Right? You know, this is not binding. Um, this is just ser- merely setting out the expectations. Um, and it should at the front also say we've got an open door policy because I find that employers that have an open door policy 
tend to have less issues. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can go all the way up to the top brass and you know that you can voice concerns um, to upper management, then that's going to be a smoother workplace. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we actually um, uh, really encourage folks that, because a lot of times our problem is with their immediate supervisor. Mm -hmm. And if you have a reporting system where you say they have to go to the immediate supervisor, well, that's just stupid. Right. You know? But I have another option. Yeah, that's if right. that's what the problem is. Right. Yeah. If it's the immediate supervisor, too, that's that's doing the harassment or discrimination, right. you know, if it's your supervisor that's coming on to you, well, mm-hmm. that's a st- stupid system if you have to go to your supervisor to complain Before first. You, yeah, you can go to anyone else. Usually, you know, it's you can go to human resources or you can go to top management, mm-hmm. et cetera. It becomes harder if it's a small shop, though, and it's like, you know, five-man shop and it's the boss that's right doing engaging in the bad behavior. Yeah. So That um, may be a situation where you find a new job and find a lawyer. Right, right. <laughs> after, you're, <laughs> after you're out of there. Yeah, so we're going to talk about that in a little bit, of, too, about how the size of a company can make a difference right. and what laws apply and, and don't apply. Absolutely. So, but moral of the story, handbook's very important. They keep things fair and, like you said, being, they keep things consistent. Right. Um, which is really, really important for especially dealing with those unemployment claims at the end. You know, if you can show you've been enforcing these same policies um, across the board and, you know, every day, then it makes, makes those situations easier to handle. And on that handbook issue too, you know, a lot of folks, um, it, they can be really confused about leave, sick mm-hmm. leave, you know, personal leave, vacation leave. How does it accrue? Do I use it? Um, do I lose it if I don't use it? Mm-hmm. Um, does it carry over? Do, if I leave the employment voluntarily, do I get it paid out? Um, all of that can be addressed in the handbook, mm-hmm. which makes it a lot clearer in terms of, you know, when it's going to be paid, when it's not going to be paid, that sort of thing. Absolutely. Um, so switching gears just a little bit, um, are all employers required to obtain workers' compensation insurance? I know you talked about sort of having a safety section in your handbook, um, and that's, you know, obviously a big part of that is uh, workers' comp for any right. on-the-job injuries. Yeah, so, um, you know, OSHA's, Virginia OSHA has a great resources too and they, they'll they come in they'll do training mm-hmm. etc um, but you definitely need to know about workers compensation insurance and you and I have seen this mm-hmm. where employers don't have it and um, that becomes an, an issue and Michelle Wayne and I when we did the the radio show on what is personal injury mm-hmm. you know versus workers comp claims we talked a little bit about the problems when employers don't have workers comp insurance so if you are an employer who regularly employs three or more full-time or part-time employees you must purchase and maintain workers compensation insurance in case one of your employees is injured on the job mm-hmm. and you know a lot of people think oh that's only for um, industrial places you right. know we don't run forklifts well an injury on the job, I mean, that, that can be somebody moving files and... Tripping. You, and tri- yeah, it could be somebody tripping over the carpet. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be somebody that, um, you know, their chair breaks. I mean, it, it, it can happen in the most mundane office environments. Right. So um, you definitely want to have um, workers' compensation insurance if you have three or more full-time or part-time employees. So you want to purchase and maintain the workers' compensation policy from a company that's licensed in Virginia... You want to apply to the Virginia Workers' Compensation Commission for approval as an independent self-insurer um, or become a member of a group self-insurance association licensed by the Virginia State Corporation Commission or enter into an agreement with a professional employer organization 
um, as provided under a certain code section. And again, if you contact the Virginia Workers' Compensation Commission, they're going to spell out your options mm-hmm. for you much more clearly so that you know exactly what those options are. Um, they make it really easy, you know, right. just just call them. Just make sure you're doing it right from, yeah. before somebody gets hurt um, and not having to deal with it after, exactly. after the fact. You know, but if, you, if you're if you going from from hiring that, that you've got two employees and now you're hiring the third, oh, okay, workers' comp insurance kicks right. in, contact the workers' comp commission and find out what your options are for, yeah. for getting insured. That just protects your employees and your business too. I mean, it's a, it's a good thing to have. So. Right. right. Um, staying on the safety issue, um, and I know this is one that we had uh, come up um, in a case, you know, in the last year or so, background checks. Um, oh, yeah. Is it, uh, why are those a good idea to run on anyone that you hire? Well, you know, some employers want to put blinders on and say, oh, well, we don't need it. If what we don't know won't hurt us, okay? Right. You know, but, um, you know, we had that horrendous case where the apartment complex hired the maintenance worker through the temp agency, and um, the temp agency, you've got to watch these background checks because you've got these really inexpensive, cheap ones on the mm-hmm. internet that don't really flush out everything about an employee. And so, you know, the temp agency ran this really cheap background check. It only went back three years. Um, well, that's not good. Mm-hmm. Okay. It just so happened that this employee had a you know six to seven page rap sheet with armed robbery and kidnapping and um, possession of, you know, firearm, illegal possession of firearms and um, uh, selling drugs and just a whole slew of different things. And then the temp agency never asked him about the five-year gap in his employment, which the answer would have been, oh, I was in the penitentiary, you know? Right. And so, um, and in that case, um, the apartment complex basically relied on the temp agency's background check, which was not a good background check at all. So you don't want to rely on these cheap inter, uh, internet criminal background checks. And in that case, the maintenance worker, he had this whole sordid history of felonies. Violent. Really violent stuff yeah. and ends up, um, you know, letting himself into our client's apartment and, um, you know, raping her, robbing her, stabbing her, wrapping her in duct tape and leaving her to, to die. Um, fortunately, she didn't. She got that little breathing hole in the duct tape. Um, thank God for yoga and meditation mm-hmm. and all the other things she was doing and but that was a huge lawsuit against that apartment complex and that temp agency, both employers running businesses right. who failed to do a decent background check on somebody that was going to have, you know, access to all of the tenants. Right, before they gave them the ring of keys to everyone's apartment. Yeah, and- yeah. Um, you know, in the state police background check, it's only $15, um, but it doesn't, people need to be aware, it doesn't, it's, it's not 100% comprehensive. It mm-hmm. doesn't report everything that's out there. Um, and you want to get the DMV record if you got mm-hmm. any, you can put anybody in a vehicle, right? If okay, driving a company car, right. or, or, or yeah. even their own car, right. and you're sending them to the bank to make a deposit. Mm-hmm. Okay, you want to get their their back their DMV background check, um, and then of course a credit uh, check as well for anybody handling company funds. I mean, look in the paper at all the cases where people have been bezzled. Yeah. So we're about to cut to the break, but call into the show at four five four one three six six with your employment questions, free legal advice today.
You've been listening to Raising the Bar, Greater Richmond's premier law talk radio show. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. Now back to Raising the Bar. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. We are back. Welcome to Raising the Bar Greater RBA's Law Talk Radio Show. Today we are talking about common employer screw-ups and how employers can stay out of hot water. And whether you have one employee or you have 100 or 500, there are a lot of ways in which you can get into trouble. Absolutely. So we're trying to give a good overview today about how to not get in trouble and all the different resources that are out there to give some guidance. So this is Colleen Quinn of the law firm of Locke & Quinn. And with me is attorney Katie Kitstein, also of the law firm of Locke & Quinn. And Katie is trying to pummel me with a lot of questions, (laughs) but she's, she's pretty savvy on a lot of these issues herself. So before the break, we were talking about employers doing background checks Mm -hmm. and the trouble they can get into um, when they don't do background checks. And, you know, it's amazing to me when you look in the paper, how many times you see issues of embezzlement Mm -hmm. and where a credit check has not been done on somebody that's going to be handling money. Um, We even had a law firm here in town where Mm -hmm. one of the lawyers actually was convicted of embezzlement. So... You know, it it can be any employee, and if if they're not good at handling money, if they've got issues with their credit, et cetera, then that's a that's a bad sign, right? Well, and as we know, as personal injury lawyers, we have these uh, you know causes of action for things like negligent hiring, negligent retention, and kind of starting to emerge negligent supervision in some cases, especially where there's this physical harm, um, like in in the case you described before the break. And so these employers who think that they can just say, oh, well, I didn't know, um, that can be a negligence action if you should have known right. um, and you didn't take the reasonable steps to educate yourself on who you're hiring and who you're giving keys to or giving a car to or giving a lot of money to. Exactly. And, you know, the great thing about us practicing both personal injury and employment law is that we, we, we can look at all those issues and dig a little deeper. If somebody is in a car accident and they're working on your uh, business's behalf and, you know, they are running an, an errand for for the business, um, but they've also been drinking on the job. And let's say they have a DUI mm-hmm. in their background and you failed to run the DMV check. Um, or they've had a series of car accidents and you failed to run the DMV mm-hmm. check, yet you then employed them and employed them in a position where they were going to be out on the road driving. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're going to be looking at that from the personal injury side and saying, well, you negligently hired that person. Right. Or if you knew that they had those other traffic infractions while they were in your appointment, well, now you've, you basically have a negligent retention claim mm-hmm. against them um, or negligent supervision because you put them back out on the road again. So always looking for whether the employer did the right thing, did they do the background check? Mm-hmm. And so as an employer, you want to, Make sure you insure yourself against liability. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, so as, as we mentioned throughout the program, there are a lot of laws um, that govern the area of employment, some federal, some state, lots of regulations. Um, but obviously not every business, especially small businesses, are going to have an in-house counsel lawyer on staff um, to advise them of all of these. So what are just some of the general um, basic things that all employers should understand about the law. Yep. So one is they should listen to the show today, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, put, put that video um, or that podcast, um, uh, preserve it somewhere so you can go back and listen to it. Um, two, uh, we're going to get uh, much of this advice up in some written form up on mm-hmm. the Raising the Bar Law Talk Radio um, website. So it's there. Um, but there, again, are a lot of good, uh, reliable resources out there. You just have to know which ones are reliable. Um, one is for federal law, you can visit the First Step Employment Law Advisor, um, and that's at the Department of Labor. So it's um, dol.gov.elaws. Uh, excuse me, slash elaws slash First Step. So again, we'll put that up on the the website, but. If you just Google First Step Employment Law Advisor, right. that'll pull that up. And the Department of Labor generally has really great, concise fact sheets, guidelines. Um, I mean, just on a lot, on really every employment law, you know, issue for things for both employees and employers to know. Um, and they break it down in a pretty understandable way. So that's just a great resource yeah. generally is the DOL website. Yeah, with lots of um, FAQs and everything, mm-hmm. including, so the Department of Labor also has some really good stuff on the Fair Labor Standards Act, yes. which, um, especially under compliance assistance, mm-hmm. um, because the Fair Labor Standards Act applies to all employers that are in the stream of commerce. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you don't pay them the minimum wage right? Um, or you mischaracterize them, and that's where we see a, a lot of mistakes happen um, is when they're mischaracterized and they're deemed to be salaried when they technically don't fall into a salary category, yeah. but they are to be paid an hourly wage and then they're subject to overtime. And so that's where you see these class action overtime claims too. Well, a lot of employers confuse salaried with exempt um, right. And that is not the case. Just because you pay someone a salary does not necessarily mean that they fall into an exemption from overtime. And this can be a really expensive mistake to make because if you're classifying all of your employees wrong or a whole chunk of your employees wrong, then you are going to find yourself hit with a not just one employee suing you, but all of your employees suing you. And the it's the FLSA is a pretty employee-friendly law. A lot of these, you know, like Title VII and stuff can tend to be a little more employer-friendly. Right. But the FLSA, the Fair Labor Standards Act, is very employee-friendly. It has a provision for automatic attorney's fees. I mean, this is, it makes there it— penalties. There's penalties, yeah. yeah. And so uh, this is not a mistake that em- employers want to make. Um, and it can be it can be an expensive, um, expensive thing to pay back if your employees catch on that they should be getting— overtime and you haven't either you haven't classified them correctly or you've been you know maybe trying to pay them comp time you know and do this you know right and, and uh, a lot of employers they think you can do comp time right. as, as opposed to overtime but then they don't understand mm-hmm. how that works and it it's they're not within, doing it correctly they're not doing yeah. it right yeah which is which is in a very it has to be within the same pay period mm-hmm. so it's 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 really tricky um absolutely most employers don't realize that that's a no-no for the yeah. most part you know um, it's really tricky to try to do comp time. Um, if you pay just overtime, you, you, then that's cleaner. Mm-hmm. It keeps and you out of hot water. so much cheaper to do it right on the front end than to have to deal with all of the extra costs of realizing after a lawsuit that you were not paying people correctly. And now you've got to not only pay them back, but, you know, you're looking at attorney's fees and penalties exactly like And you there are said. a lot of lawyers out there, too, that are looking for these cases. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yep. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, so 
really good stuff on the Department of Labor website on the Fair Labor um, Standards Act. And it, and it's great free legal guidance. Absolutely. You know, so if you can't afford a lawyer, go on that website. Mm-hmm. So we do have a question from Asher about overtime. Yeah, you had mentioned that there are, um, there's circumstances where you're salaried and you get overtime. I, I didn't know that that existed. What situations would that apply to? Um, well, a lot of it, so... Determining whether or not you're entitled to overtime is not necessarily a question of whether you're salaried or whether you're um, you're hourly. Um, if to not get overtime, you have to fall into um, one of several enumerated exemptions under the FLSA. Um, and so, a lot of people, even that get a salary, don't necessarily fall into one of those exemptions. Um, and so, they still are entitled to overtime. And it's it's a little bit trickier to figure out what exactly that should be. But just because you're paying someone a salary um, doesn't necessarily mean that you might not still owe them overtime if they're working over 40 hours a week. Um, right. So, they're... There are certain types of categories, such as professionals, right. um, that will be exempt. Um, there are certain uh, higher paid worker, um, which is the white collar exemption mm-hmm. category. Um, and so there, there are certain areas, um, like where engineers and scientists mm-hmm. and uh, uh, professors and stuff like that will fall into these certain exemptions. But... Um, if you don't fall into an exempt category, mm-hmm. um, also certain management exemptions, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you manage two or more employees, and there's a lot of other factors that go into that right. too. I don't want to oversimplify it, but um, if you don't fall into an exempt category, then you are not exempt. Mm-hmm. And even if you're paid a salary, you're still entitled to overtime. So the way that works is, is that... Um, and and I see this in a lot of retail establishments mm-hmm. where um, em- employers will try to say, oh, they're they're a sales they're an, a sales employee, they're an outside sales, they fall under that exemption, but they're actually inside the business. Okay, right. so that that doesn't fall within. So you've got to look and see specifically: do they fall within an exemption? Do they not fall within an exemption? The mere fact that you're paying them salary doesn't mean that they're exempt. Right. And if they're not exempt, then you've got to look at the salary. And if they're working overtime, you need to break the salary down into an hourly rate and then pay them the overtime. So and they've earned it, yeah. does, does that answer your question, Asher? I think I have a lot more research to do. It sounds like, <laughs> a, it, it sounds like it, it's very dependent upon what you do. Yes. And, and it, there's also a lot of nuances within that. Absolutely. Um, But it is very dependent on what your actual job duties are. And I mean, for example, uh, lawyers, I mean, there's there's case law that lawyers always fall into that professional exemption and doctors, outside sales employees, but paralegals almost never fall into that. So, you you know, these lawyers, lawyers aren't getting paid overtime, but they should be paying their paralegals overtime um, because there's case law on why paralegals don't fall into that professional exemption. They um, they are non-exempt. Right. Uh, okay. And um, we pay our paralegals a salary, um, but then that still gets gotta broke, their hours. We, yeah. we got to track their hours. And mm-hmm. if they work overtime, then that salary gets broken down into an hourly rate. Mm-hmm. And then after that, they after they after if they work more than 40 hours, then now they're getting time and a half. That's very interesting because that means employers should not only be tracking the time of their hourly employees, but also their salaried employees, which is not something that's normally thought about. They should be tracking the time of their non-exempt, yeah, salaried employees. Um, and just, yeah, really, I think what you said, educate yourself on, um, you know, what makes someone exempt or non-exempt. Make sure you know and make sure you're classifying your 
um, employees correctly so that you can track um, and make sure you're paying them correctly. And again, the Department of Labor has really good guidance, guidance on yeah. what's exempt and what's not exempt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so FLSA, definitely a big law that uh, employers want to educate themselves on. Any other? Um, yeah. Um, the one thing that I see a lot is a lot of these employers that mischaracterize their employees as independent contractors and right. try to do a 1099 instead of a W-2. And the IRS is really tight on the, the, the enumerated control factors, which, again, if you just Google independent contractor or you Google the IRS control factor test, it goes through and... and if if the employee, um, if you're providing them with their tools, if they're coming into an office setting, if you're requiring them to work certain hours, that is not an independent contractor. Um, so there's there's this whole test for the level of control that the employer has over the employee versus the level of control that the independent contractor has over their own work. Mm-hmm. And a true independent contractor um, does everything, you know, generally off the premises, provides all of their own equipment, um, you know, basically works on their own accord. And so that's another area where employers get into hot water. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, of course, a COBRA, COBRA notices. We see a lot of mistakes there where employers aren't sending out the the COBRA notice. An employee leaves employment Mm -hmm. and they're they're not notified of their right to stay on the health insurance. Uh, We see... Employers get in hot water with OSHA, right? Um, you know where they're not following state safety standards. And again, all you have to do is contact Virginia OSHA, and they'll come in and they'll they'll they'll, they'll do they'll basically do training and right. and kind of educate, et cetera. Um, and then what becomes really tricky, um, as you know, Katie, is that there are all these different federal laws that may or may not apply depending on the number of employees that you have, yes, et cetera. So. Um, the Equal Pay Act means you have to pay all people equally that are in the same job position. Yeah, and that and applies to all employers in the stream of commerce. Mm-hmm. So um, the Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act applies if you have 15 or more employees. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the Virginia Human Rights Act captures the employers that have 5 to 14 employees. So mm-hmm. it captures that smaller number. And what's really crazy is that if you have less than five employees then you're not titled to any sort of discrimination act. Right. Yeah, which which is a lot of, when we get calls yeah. from folks that'll say, my employer's discriminating against me and it's, they only have four employees, we're like, well, unfortunately, that's not protected. You know, right. it's not fair, Right. Um, but it's not protected. The Age Discrimination Employment Act applies to 20 or more employees. Mm-hmm. The Americans with Disabilities Act applies to 15 or more employees. Uh, Virginia Equal Pay Act applies to all employers that are not under the FLSA. So um, if they're not in the stream of commerce, then the Virginia Equal Pay Act, um, excuse me, if they're not under the Equal Pay Act in the stream of commerce, that's yeah, mm-hmm. then um, it'll fall under the Virginia Equal Pay Act. And then, of course, the Virginians with Disabilities Act, that applies to all employers. Um, so, you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act captures 15 or more Virginia with Disabilities Act kind of fills in that gap right. of the under 15 mm-hmm. so that um, so that, that gets captured there. So, um, and it makes a difference too in the number of employees you have based on the level of damages. Mm-hmm. So like under Title VII, there are different damage caps depending on the number of employees um, right. that, you've, that you've got. And so Title VII is the law that says you can't discriminate on the basis of... Uh, 
sex, race, national origin, religion, you know, the the laundry list of things that you All always All the protected hear. factors. Yeah, the, the protected classes is you can't discriminate, harass, retaliate. Um, that's that's Title Seven. It kind of covers all of the the be fair rule that you mentioned at the beginning yes, the be, of the show. The be fair rule, regardless of right. your national origin, your religion, your sex, your race, your religion, mm-hmm. um, your you know age falls out of uh, Title Seven, but it falls under the um, uh, age, discrimination. age discrimination employment act. Yeah. And um, so you know, basically, you don't want to discriminate. And then under under uh, also marital status. And then under sex, that also um, has the subset of the pregnancy discrimination mm-hmm. provisions of Title Seven. So you've got to watch out if you discriminate against somebody that's pregnant. And then also under sex, now we have a um, evolving law um, that we talked about when we did the LGBT mm-hmm. show, um, radio show. Uh, we've got an evolving law that protects gender expression and sexual orientation mm-hmm. as well. Um, so that's so that so when you look at title the face of Title Seven, there's also some kind of expansion on right. on some of those areas as well. So employers, again, if you just if you're fair to all your employees, you know, regardless of of where they come from in their walk of life or you know their characteristics, um, then you're you're going to stay out of that hot water. Absolutely. Yep. Um, but like you were saying, the amount of employees you have can really affect how these laws are going to hit you, um, especially when it comes to damages under Title VII, because there's different uh, damage caps, and that is based on how big your business is. Right. Um, so you can basically get hit with a higher possible penalty if you're a bigger, um, if you're a bigger business under Title VII and you've and, and you violated Title VII. Yeah. But, you know, um, it's still crazy because there's still that gap in Virginia of mm-hmm. if your employer has less than five employees, um, it's crazy because we've had cases where on the employee side where the employee says, well, I'm being sexually harassed and discriminated against, you know, by my male employer. And we're like, well, how many employees do you have? Does he have? Well, it's it's less than five. Well, there's no protection um, other than looking for possible tort actions. Right. I mean, was there an assault and battery involved? You know, um, are there other areas that we can possibly look for some sort of uh, of a tort action? Right. Or was there a breach of contract? Or was there anything else that we can possibly, you know, rely upon yeah. in that regard? Absolutely, absolutely. And um, I know business size can also make a difference. I used to do some uh, disability you know, discrimination law, and under the ADA, you have to make reasonable accommodations if you're subject to the ADA um, for any of your, you know, uh, employees who can um, otherwise do the job with the accommodation. Um for their disability, but what constitutes a reasonable accommodation can be affected by the size of the business. If you're really small, you know, and the accommodation is hire an extra person to, you know, help out with something that may or may not be reasonable depending on the size of the business and, you know, what it's going to cost. So that can really come into play. So by way of example, you know, if you've got an employee and they've got um, multiple sclerosis, okay, or, or muscular dystrophy, and you're a um, a retail shop with ten employees, and you're you're banking on, or let's make it twenty or more mm-hmm. employees. But you're a retail shop, and so you're banking on the employees being there to assist customers. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, if that employee with multiple sclerosis or muscular dystrophy says, "Well, I really need to work from home," you know, because I need to be laying down in a prone mm-hmm. position most of the day. That's not that's not going to be something that that employer can reasonably accommodate. But on the other hand, if you're an employer, you know, with, let's, you know, say 
more than 20 employees and it's a computer business or it's oh, right. it's a business where somebody's basically just um, having to sit at the computer all day. Well, there's no reason really why the employer can't work from home and you can't accommodate them in that situation. Absolutely. Um, so it really can be dependent on both size and nature of the of the business yeah. in terms of, but you've got to look in, at the, both of those factors to see is it a reasonable accommodation or Absolutely. not. Absolutely. Yep. Um, so what about insurance? Is What do employers need to know about insurance? Well, to protect both your personal and your corporate assets, um, well, first of all, if you're setting up a company, you want to go ahead and set yourself up as, yes. as, a, as, a, as a limited liability company or, you know, oh, a, yeah. a, a PC, or you've, just, you've got to talk to a corporate lawyer and get yourself set up so that you insulate yourself from personal liability. Because if you just hang out your shingle and you're doing business as... Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, Colleen Quinn doing business as, you know, Colleen Quinn. And I don't s- incorporate or mm-hmm. I don't set myself up as as a particular corporation or limited liability corporation, et cetera. Well, now I'm just hanging out there in terms of my liability. I can be sued personally. So by setting yourself up as a particular um, corporate entity, now you have insulated your personal assets from liability. Mm-hmm. So I, I see a lot of folks that just are kind of, deciding I'm going to, you know, sell crafts or I'm going to, whatever it is that they're going to do, right. but then they don't insulate themselves from from liability by setting themselves up officially as, as some sort of a corporate entity. And then you want to get general liability insurance um, on the business mm-hmm. and the premises. And if there are any vehicles used in the business, of course, you want to have automobile insurance right. again to protect yourself within the business. So, um and it's really important that you set yourself up properly because then there's this whole body of law, which you mm-hmm. and I know, which is piercing the corporate veil. Right. Because if you fail to insure your business properly and set yourself up... Um, and even if you think you're insulated from personal liability, but you haven't gotten the insurance and, you know, kept the money separate and followed all the rules... And followed corporate formalities... Mm-hmm then um, a good attorney can pierce the corporate veil and basically then access your personal assets. Mm-hmm. So set, so setting yourself up properly very from the important. very beginning is, again, very important. Very important. Um, so what about just general rules? We've been talking a lot about sort of things to do on the front end, the setup phase of, um, you know, uh, getting your employees started. What about, you know, once they've been there a while and you've, you've got an up and running business, what are just some good tips for managing your employees once they're working for you? So you want to set out specific job duties and expectations Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, that's just good communication. Mm -hmm. And it's, okay, this is what I'm expecting of you. This is what your job's going to involve. You also want to review employees, um, especially new employees after the initial three months. You want to make sure you're giving them feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, You also want to basically sit down with your employees and do an annual review. Um, even if it's not a full written review with a grading system, um, which, which is recommended, However, you know, some shops are more informal, but at least sit down with your employees and give them feedback in terms of how they're doing, what could they do better. And I actually, as you know, Katie, mm-hmm. I, I, I have you audit me too. You know, what can I do better, you know, um, as, as the supervisor mm-hmm. um, in terms of how can I be a better supervisor as well? So that goes back to that kind of open door policy of, of free communication. We're all working to make our business a better business. Yeah. Um, so you want to have that... Um, uh, annual review process, or even a six-month review process. Um, also, if you've got talented, motivated, and happy employees, that's going to drive your business success. You know, Absolutely. that's the Southwest Airlines po- policy, yeah. which is, you know, to put the employees rather than the customers first, um, and then the customers will follow. Mm-hmm. And so, um, 
And you want to make sure you know what's going on in your company. So, you know, with all my em- employer clients, I actually have them um, do an, an annual audit and kind of annual uh, uh, checkup with their employees. In particular, we have all the employees sign a statement that they are not aware of any discrimination, harassment, or retaliation going on in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And of course, then if somebody claims that they've got an issue with one of those, you know, with with being harassed or being discriminated against, you pull out the annual statement and say, well, you're mandated to report this. Why didn't you report it? And why did you say there wasn't anything going on? Right. Um, so you do want to know what's going on in your company. And you, again, going back to that open door policy. So um, we want to make sure that, uh, that and our, that our employees feel open to come to talk to you about things that are going on. There's not going to be any reprisal or retaliation. Right. And this is kind of an extension of the handbook. Essentially, you're kind of carrying over that same, make sure everyone knows what the policies are, make sure you're being consistent with them. You know, a lot of this is just kind of keeping that going. Right, right. Um, and, you know, you want to have kind of like, um, you want to have meetings periodically where you kind of request feedback, mm-hmm. you know, from employees. What can you do better? I mean, employees have a lot of really good ideas about sometimes how the business can be better. Yep. So we're getting close to the end of the show, but you're going to ask me the next question. Yes, I am. We have just a <laughs> couple more little things that employers should uh, make sure to know about. Um, paycheck deductions. Yeah, another, one another big people... screw up area. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions about paycheck deductions. So... If the uniform, cell phone, tools, et cetera, are for the benefit of the employer, then generally it is not legal to require the employees to pay for it, mm-hmm. okay? Especially like if the uniform has your your company logo on right. it, okay? You, you have to give that to your employees. And so um, in any deductions other than the state and federal mandated deductions, um, like taxes, Social Security, Medicare, they've got to be approved in writing by the employee, so, you know, going back to the employee that embezzled, you can't deduct that mm-hmm. stolen money from their paycheck, okay, unless they agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so you want to have, uh, we, we have a client that's a beer distributor, okay, and employees right. get penalized if they let the beer go stale, okay, in, in the retail premises mm-hmm. where it's being sold. Well, you can't deduct that from their paycheck. Now, they can either opt to take a day in the street suspension mm-hmm. or that then they can opt otherwise in a voluntary signed document that I don't want to take a day on the street. Instead, I'll take a $50 penalty from my paycheck or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Um, so that is another area in which employers can get themselves in hot water is making right. illegal deductions from paychecks or requiring employees to pay for items that are required for the job when yeah. that really needs to be the employer paying for that. Absolutely. Um, so I know we're getting really close to time, but just very quickly, anything employers should know about accrued benefits? Yeah, so a lot of employers don't realize sometimes that they are allowing their employees to accrue vacation or sick leave that yes. they need to pay them for. Right. Yep. Great show today. Join us next week where we talk about how a single dad built his family through foster care, private adoption, and surrogacy. Mm-hmm. Be a fun show. Yep. 